Well, amen. Thank you so much to those of you who led us in worship. That was amazing. That was a blessing. Thank you very much for that. Well, I want to thank Dr. Greenway for the uh, invitation to be here today. This, this is home for me. This is my hometown. Uh, I, I grew up just a little north on I-35 and a little bit east on 820 in a, a, a little community, or it's not little anymore, uh, North Richland Hills. And uh, my home church was just a little further north on I-35, or actually back west on 820, North Fort Worth Baptist Church. And uh, Joey Dean, who is sitting here today, he was a longtime employee for Southwestern Seminary, was my 10th grade Sunday school teacher. So that explains a lot, I guess, about me. No, his dad taught me how to drive a forklift working summers at Renfro Foods right there off I-35 near downtown, making picani sauce and barbecue sauce and chow chow and corn relish and tomato relish. I still have the smell of those uh, sauces lined in the nose, the lining of my olfactory system here. But it is good to be here and a little further up I-35, as Dr. Greenway said, I want to bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters and sister churches in Oklahoma. And I want to tell you, Oklahoma Baptists are very, very uh, grateful for the leadership of Dr. Greenway here, and we are very grateful for our partnership with Southwestern Seminary. And we're excited about the, the work that God is doing here uh, in your midst and uh, are so happy to support that, be a part of that. Uh, I, I want to share a message briefly with you this morning that uh, I wished I had heard and heeded when I was in college and seminary. Now, the Lord called me to ministry when I was uh, 16 there at North Fort Worth Baptist Church. I was 18, and we were attending a centrifuge camp at Glorietta. And that, that kind of irks Oklahoma Baptists that I wasn't called to preach at Falls Creek. Let the reader understand. But uh, that's where it was, and um, called a ministry and went to OBU through a lo very long story of God's providence. But I want to tell you, when I first started out, was called to ministry, started out in college, started out in seminary, let me tell you, I wanted to be great, okay? I, I wanted to be great. I wanted to pastor the big church. I wanted to have all this impact. I wanted to have all this influence. And I kind of had in my mind what greatness looked like for the ministry, and I want to tell you, over the years, I've been a pastor for 30 years in Oklahoma before I took this role, I have learned over the years that what I thought greatness was when I was young, actually real, true, godly greatness turns out to be something very different. And we're going to study a passage together this morning, and it's very interesting to me because the inner circle of Jesus' disciples essentially come to Jesus with their mother and say, hey, Jesus, we want you to be great. Make us great. And I think it's fascinating as we read this in just a moment, you will notice that Jesus doesn't deter them from their desire to be great. He basically says, oh, good. Y'all want to be great? That's fantastic. Go and be great. But the catch is God's definition of greatness and the world's definition of greatness are really diametrically opposed. They thought greatness was to sit at his right hand and to sit at his left. They thought greatness was to be the CEO or the COO, to be the vice president or the secretary of state. But it turns out that greatness actually involves dying to yourself, putting yourself last, and following Christ 
with every fiber of your being. That's what greatness really looks like. Now, here's the thing. If someone like the inner circle of Jesus' disciples could confuse greatness, and we're going to read from Matthew 20 in just a moment. We're at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. So if anybody should not be confused about what greatness is, it ought to be James and John, right? But here's James and John just, a, just, just days away from the crucifixion, a week away from it. And we're going to see that these guys have confused what greatness is. These guys have inverted God's values and the world's values when it comes to greatness. So it's easy for any of us to misunderstand greatness. Um, about eight, nine years ago, Oklahoma Baptist University started a football team for the first time since before World War II. And being the pastor there at Emmanuel and Shawnee, I had the privilege to get to be the chaplain for the football coaches at OBU. I loved every moment of that. And one of the things that I got to do was I, I, I did a weekly Bible study with the football coaches. It was great. Anyway, hanging out with these guys, one of the things I learned about college football coaches is that is a 365-day-a-year job. I mean, they're working all the time because it's not just the football season. When the football season is over, these guys hit the recruiting trail like crazy. And so they, they, they told me a funny story that's kind of an inner workings of football coaches kind of story. And I want to share it with you. It, it's kind of humorous, but it really underlines this misunderstanding what greatness is. So the little story they like to tell is this. The football season's over. The head coach gets the assistant coaches together, and he says, all right, guys, it's time to hit the recruiting trail. So we're all going to go out there. We're going to go to these high schools. We're going to go to these homes. We're going to do all of this. And I want to tell you guys, before you get out there, I want to tell you about the kind of football player that we want on our team. And so the assistant coaches are, all right, coach, yeah, we're ready. And he says, you know the kind of guy that when he gets knocked down, he never gets back up again? And they said, yeah, yeah, coach, we don't want that kind of player. Right. He said, then, you know, there's, this, there's a player that when he gets knocked down, he gets back up again. But when he gets knocked down a second time, he doesn't get back up. And the assistant coaches go, yeah, we don't want that kind of player. And the head coach goes, but then there's that player that every single time he gets knocked down, he gets up. He gets knocked down, he gets up. He gets knocked down, he gets up. And the assistant coach is like, yeah, coach, that's the kind of player we want. And the head coach goes, no, I want you to go find me the guy knocking everybody down. And you see, that's kind of how the world views greatness. You're great if you can knock everybody down. You're great if you can dunk a basketball. You're great if you're a billionaire. You're great if you can win some award. But as we turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, we discover that greatness is actually something very different. And seminary students, I want to challenge you today to be great, but not as the world views greatness as Jesus views greatness. And the way Jesus views greatness, it really is uh, concomitant with your calling in ministry, and that is to serve. So let's read Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared 
by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. By the way, you know this is a whole bunch of Baptists we're talking about here because this is a good old-fashioned power play right here, right? Business meeting. Verse 25, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, right in this text, you see a misunderstanding of greatness. And by the way, if you look at the context, you immediately see right off the top, context tells you how these people just don't understand what greatness is. They really don't understand Uh, who Jesus is and why he's come. Because if you just go back up to verse 17, just a few verses before we read, look at the context of this. By the way, we we, we are right on the cusp of, of Passion Week. If you look over at chapter 21, this is the triumphal entry. So we're at the end of the three years here. We're at the end of his earthly ministry. And look at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, right? He's on his way to the cross, He took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, this is significant because in Matthew's gospel, this is not the first time Jesus has predicted his death. It's not the second time. It's the third time that Jesus has predicted his death. And in the gospel here, right on the heels of Jesus saying, I'm going into Jerusalem to give my life for you, what is their response to that? Their response to that is, hey, Jesus, what's in it for me? It would would be the same as if you came up to me and said, hey, Todd, I just came from the doctor's office, and I just found out that I've got stage four inoperable cancer, and I've got like three months to live. And my response to that news would be, uh, hey, here's my car keys. Would you mind to drive down the street and wash and wax my car for me? All I can hear in what you said was still what's in it for me. You see the cold, brazen, thoughtless, selfish response then of the disciples to Jesus giving his life for them. And then you look at Salome. Matthew doesn't name her, but the the, the mother of James and John is a woman named Salome. And by the way, it's very fascinating. Uh, Sometimes I I, I cringe a little at at movies about the Bible that take a little license on things. But but, but, but I think Matthew is painting a scene for us here. Uh, Here's Jesus standing here, and he's speaking to Salome. And here is the mother of James and John, and she's speaking. And by the way, about halfway through our passage, did you notice the fascinating shift of pronouns? It starts, he, she, he, she, Jesus and Salome are talking back and forth. But when he says, are you able to drink the cup, notice how the pronoun shifts to the plural and they answer. And then the 10 are over here, right? Kind of, they come upon him. So here's the scene. Here's Jesus, here's Salome. But James and John are hiding behind mama. 
And when he says, are you able to drink the cup? They kind of in unison said, we are able. It's like one head pops out on one side, the other head pops out on the other side. We are able. And let's just call it for what it is. Here's a couple of cowards that have sent their mama in to kind of do their bidding for them. But look at Salome's words. There's two things here that really show us how they have misunderstood greatness. Here's the first one in verse 21. She says to him, right? Hey, he said to her, what do you want? She says, say that these two sons of mine are to sit. Your translation may say command that these two sons of mine. Listen to me. If you ever find yourself in a place where you are ordering God what to do, if you ever come to a place and you say, hey, God, this is what you are to do for me. You, you are commanding God. Let me tell you something, friends. That is a dangerous place to be. And you see what has obviously birthed this? She's gotten her boys or the boys have gotten their mama. They've separated themselves from the ten. And what they're trying to do is they're, they're, still, they're, they're still undoubtedly lost and caught up that Jesus is the socio-political Messiah that here in a minute is going to pull the sword out from under his cloak and he's going to defeat the Romans and he's going to give these, the, the Jewish independent rule like they had years before Jesus was born. They're still caught up in that and they think I'm going to be vice president, I'm going to be secretary of state and they pulled themselves aside and what's inherent, what's implied in this text is essentially this, hey Jesus... You owe this to me. She says to him, my two boys have been with you since day one. They're part of your inner circle. They deserve to sit at your right and your left. Friends, look at me. I'm just going to be real open and honest and transparent, and I'm going to tell you this. Listen to me. God does not owe you a thing. In fact, if God gave you what you deserved, you wouldn't want it. Don't ever get to a place where you think, oh God, you owe this to me. I've been, I've, I've been you know, Sunday school, I've been in church for years, a Christian years, whatever. You, you may be here saying, you know what, God? I could have gone this path in college and, and school, and I could have gone and, and, and made hundreds of thousands of dollars in this career, but here I am, God, and I've, I've given myself to you and to the ministry, and so you know what, God? You, you kind of owe it to me to make my path a little less painful or difficult. God doesn't know you any of that. In fact, when you, when you yielded your life to follow Christ as his, as his child, and when you yielded your life to follow him in ministry... Friends, you already said that you would be willing to undergo many hardships in order to follow him and serve him. Here's the other thing that Salome says that's really kind of troubling. Not only does she say, say or command, but look, she says, I want you to command that these two sons of mine are to what? Sit at your right hand. Now, what does that imply? Uh, I'm going to go off cue here a little bit. I hope I don't upset any of the camera people, but I mean, just... When you sit in a chair, just look at the picture here. What's being communicated here? Jesus, I want you to command my boys to sit, not go to work, but to sit. And you know what she's saying to him? Here's what she's saying. Jesus, I don't want my boys to serve in your kingdom. 
I want them to be served in your kingdom. You say, well, preacher, how, how do you know that? How would you think that? Well, look at the end of the text. Jesus says this of himself. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so, friends, here is what greatness is according to the Lord. It's not to be served. It's not to have all these accolades or whatever you might put in that bucket. It is to die to yourself, and it is to follow him in faith and obedience and to serve him and to serve others. Now, looking at this, sit at my right hand and sit at my left, we can pull out a couple of specific things here. You know, greatness, according to this text here, greatness isn't found in position. These guys think, oh, if I can get as close to Jesus and sit as close to Jesus as I can, that's what's going to make me great. And here's the world over here saying that. If you get CEO after your name, you're great. And like I said, if you can throw a touchdown pass or if you can dunk a ball or if you can, can, can record a Grammy-winning uh, hit, you're great. But friends, none of those things make you great. Adrian Reisers used to have a little saying. Adrian Reisers used to say, if you're pleasing Jesus, it doesn't matter who you displease. But if you displease Jesus, it doesn't matter who you please. Think about that. Greatness isn't found in position. It's not found in being the pastor of the biggest church or the, or the whatever it might be. Greatness is found in you humbly fulfilling wherever and whatever he has called you to do. Greatness also isn't found in power. I think that is inherent in this text, right? Hey, we want to have these positions. We want to have this power. And I think you see that when you get down to verse 25. Because look what Jesus says to them when we have this idea of greatness and power. He says, you know that the, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And in the Greek there, there's this, there's this idea of tyranny. You're running over people. You're, you're abusing people so you can get what you want. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Have you ever noticed that a lot of times the people that act like they have the most power actually don't have any power? <laughs> and honestly, friends, when we compare ourselves to God, what power do we really have anyway? You know, I, I learned this thing back in my life. Again, right over here in, uh, right over here in, in, in Hearst, Texas, I went to W.A. Porter Elementary School. Now, let me tell you a little quick story about my, my time at W.A. Porter. Get, put your seatbelt on because this is really amazing. Okay, I'm going to tell you how great I was. You ready? Uh, when I got to sixth grade, I was elected not only to the safety patrol, but I was elected to be the captain of the safety patrol. Are you all impressed? Now, as the captain of the safety patrol, what does that mean? That meant I didn't go to, that, the, I didn't go to the intersection on the backside of the school where only like 10 cars went the whole time. No, 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 no. I got to get out of class like 10 minutes early out of the last period, and I got to go to the office, and I got to don that bright orange vest, and I got to wear a whistle as the captain. Nobody else wore the whistle, but I got to wear the whistle as the captain, and I got to hold one of those handheld stop signs. And let me tell you what, I went to the main intersection right at the front where all the cars, and Every day, every afternoon, as the sixth grade captain of the same patrol, I went down to that intersection like this. Boy, I thought I was hot stuff, man. And I'd go down there, and there was power. You know what the power was? Because I could walk out into that intersection and hold my little stop sign up, and I could make those parents stop. 
it was intoxicating as a sixth grader. And sometimes if I was really kind of, you know, feeling salty, I'd walk out there and I'd, I'd hold my stop sign out and then I'd even put my hand out there to accompany it, right? Stop right there. And that went on for several weeks and I, I was getting, uh, just like I said, intoxicated with this power and feeling all, until one day a parent just, she just knocked me down and she, she kind of let me know how it goes. And I was, there was a lot of kids, I was holding up the line, I kept holding up the line, kept holding up the line and finally she rolls down the window of that minivan and she says, hey! Who do you think you are? Get over there and let these cars pass. And I like melted into a puddle right there in the street. And all of a sudden I realized I actually didn't have that much power. And I didn't have that much authority. And here's what I want y'all to see. Listen to this. If you think that greatness is in power or you think you're high and mighty and great, you don't really have that. But y'all look at verse 26. When you think greatness is power, when you think greatness is position, look at the opening phrase of verse 26. When Jesus says to his disciples, when you compare yourself to the world and what they think greatness is, what does he say? He says, it shall not be so among you. Do you know what he's saying right there? What he's saying right there is, hey, y'all, look at the world over here. Here's how they view greatness, power, position, accolades, all of that. Jesus says, look at that. And then Jesus, when Jesus says, it shall not be so among you, you know what he's saying? He's looking at his disciples and he's saying this. Hey, guys, you can do better. It shall not be so among you. There is a better way to view greatness. And if we are truly, in fact, living for what is eternal and we are, when we put ourselves last on this earth, when we put ourselves in a position of service and death to self, friends, in eternity, we're gonna see that that's really what mattered. Now, I'll tell you, I think every one of you, <laughs> you know, hey, I wanna make something of my life. I want my life to count. I want my life to matter. I want, I want to be great, if you will, in a sense. Do that. But don't do it in the world's definition. Do it in Jesus' definition. Listen, every day that you wake up, before your feet hit the floor, die to yourself. I've had a couple of preaching students over the, the years of, of teaching preaching. <laughs> and I'll have a student who will use the text, you know, uh, take up your cross and follow me. And the student will say, well, what Jesus means here is everyone has a cross to bear, you know, like a mother-in-law or something like that. I hope my mother-in-law is not listening. <laughs> um, I don't think that's what Jesus means. Well, let me teach you a little word here. When Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross, I think what Jesus is admonishing his disciples to do is to live the cruciformed life. And if you think about it, a linchpin of Pauline theology is the moment you come to faith in Christ, you basically crawled up on that cross and died with him. What do you, what do you say to the Galatians in 2.20? Hey, I'm alive, but it's not me that's alive. It's Jesus living his life through me. Before your feet hit the floor every day, it's, it's not just that one time cross. Every single day, I crucify my flesh I crucify myself so that I can make myself last 
and I can follow his example. And friends, that's how this passage ends, is we follow the example of Jesus. You want to be great? Good. Do that. But here's how Jesus did it. He came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The night, we're about to read it here in just a couple of chapters. The night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus gave them a living example of what greatness really looks like. I mean, y'all just picture it for a second. <laughs> what did Jesus do? He rose after supper, and what does he, what does he do? He gets on his hands and knees. Now look at this picture. This is the man that created the universe. And is he lording it over them? Is he doing all? No, he, what is he? He gets a bowl of water and a towel and he washes those nasty, dirty feet of the disciples. Friends, if you want to be great, replicate the example of Jesus. Start washing feet. When Indira Nui was named the chairman, chairperson of PepsiCo, she was working late at one night and the board called her and said, congratulations, the board has elected you to be the chairman of PepsiCo. PepsiCo. In her final year as the chairperson of PepsiCo, she made $33 million. This is a big job. She runs home. Her mother is living at home with her. She runs home to tell her family, I've just been named the chairperson of, of PepsiCo. And she comes home and she sees her mother. She says, mom, I have this great news. And mom interrupted her and said, go to the store and buy me some milk first. <laughs> she goes, mom, I've got really big. Go to the store and buy me milk. So she goes to the store and she buys milk and she comes back and she tries to basically and tells her mother, mother, I'm not in a position anymore where I'm going to go buy milk. I've just been named the chairperson of PepsiCo. Basically, I am big, hot shot stuff now. And when Indira Nuri is telling the story, writing the story, she says her mother looked at her and said, you know, your first priority is still to be a wife and a mother and a daughter and a sister. You go up there every day and you park in that fancy parking garage and you go to your fancy job, but that really shouldn't be your priority. And then Indira Nui makes this statement and just kind of knocked the breath out of you. When you're, she said her mother looked at her and said, listen, when you come home, leave your crown in that garage. As followers of Christ, let's leave our crown in the garage. Let's be servants who have died to self, who are washing feet, who are putting ourselves last and serving however and wherever God has called us. That is true greatness. Let's pray together.